Well, good morning and happy Easter to you. It's good to see you this morning. Um, you know, this week I met with somebody who's not a member of our church. She was part of another ministry and uh, actually a, a relief organization in town. And uh, she thanked me. She said, I, I know this is a really busy week for you, so thanks for giving me some time. This is sort of like your Super Bowl. And I, I kind of laughed. And then later on I thought about it and I realized, you know, that's, that's not really a good analogy because when you're going into a Super Bowl I'm sure you're anxious. I don't know, because I root for Houston teams, and so, you know, truth hurts. But I'm assuming you're worried about who's going to win. You're, you're anxious about who's going to come out on top. Well, the thing is, we know who wins. We know who already won. The game is over. The victory has been won, and it's won by Jesus. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. Uh, we can joyfully sing. So, so what, what we're doing here today is more like the victory parade. This is the victory parade after the championship, and I know there's a lot of work that goes into a parade, but you know what? No matter how Robert or, or Nathan does today, no matter how I do today, Christ is still risen. And whether you got here on time or not, whether you got here in a good mood or you're mad at somebody, Christ is still risen. So we are walking in victory today, and that's good news. All right? So... Nothing I'm about to say is going to change that, but I will say this. What we're going to look at today is challenging. So I know maybe some of you came here today, man, I need an encouraging message to just remind me that I have the victory. I'm telling you, you have the victory. Believe me in that. But what I'm going to say today is going to challenge you. At least it challenged me. So John chapter 12, verse 20 um, I just want to start with this quote before we get into the scripture. Uh, one of my favorite preachers and authors is Timothy Keller. He said something a few years ago that really struck me. He said, the resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. Now, what could he possibly mean by that? If you're familiar with him, you know that uh, 30 years or so ago, he, he and his wife moved to New York City and planted a church in, right in Manhattan, right in the heart of the city, probably the least fertile ground for a new church any place in America. And yet, in the decades since then, they've reached thousands of people with the gospel and, and, and drawn people into the family of God and, and created a great church. Um, so he knows he knows what it's like to be around people who have no regard for Scripture, no regard for, uh, for Christianity. And he also knows the way people evaluate a religion is they say, well, what does it teach? What do you have to do to follow this religion? Can I abide by that? Can I live with the kind of teachings this religion presents? And so people will come to him in, in New York City, as they often do, and say, listen, I could never be a Christian because of what the Bible says about this. And he said, interestingly, when I first started doing this, it was, they didn't agree with what the Bible says about money. Nowadays, they're more likely to say, I'm offended by what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. But he said, either way, my response to them is always something along these lines. I'll say, so you're telling me that because you find something in the Bible offensive, that means there's no way Jesus rose from the grave. And they'll say, wait, what? No, that's not what I'm saying. Why would you say that? And he says, well, think about it. Jesus is unlike any other religious teacher in this way. You look at Muhammad, you look at the Buddha, you look at Joseph Smith, you look at, you look at Moses, for instance. And they all said the same thing. They said, I have had an encounter with the divine. Therefore, I now know how to solve the problems of this world. Therefore, I now know how you can live a more fulfilling life and have life eternal. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, I've had an encounter with the divine. He says, I am divine. 
He doesn't say, I found the answers to the world's problems. He says, I am the answer to the world's problems. I am the way you experience the life that you were created to have and life eternal. There is no other way apart from me. And since the whole Bible points to Jesus, he's in every book of the scriptures pointing toward him. He's the apex of scripture. He's the apex of divine revelation because he is the one that scripture holds up as our hero and rescuer and savior. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead then everything he said was a lie, and therefore the whole Bible is untrue. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if you find it offensive. Why even worry about it? Because it's not true. But on the other hand, if Jesus did rise, then frankly, it doesn't matter how offensive you find the Bible's teachings. They're true, and therefore you have to reckon with them. You know, Apostle Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if Christ is not raised... Your faith is dead. You are still in your sins. And nobody, nobody who's ever lived found Christianity more offensive than Saul of Tarsus. And yet when he came to believe and know that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and really was Lord, he put his offenses aside and said, I'm going to follow him no matter what. Because the, revel- the, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Now, I am not here this morning to try to prove to you that the resurrection happened. We could have that discussion. I would love to have that discussion. I really, really wanted to have that discussion, but but our worship leaders told me I have 25 minutes and we just don't have time. So what we're going to do is, if you are today someone who came to church saying, I'm just not sure about all this stuff, Jeff. I really wish you'd tell me how you know Jesus is risen because I need certainty. Or maybe you come here saying, I don't even want to be here. I find this stuff ridiculous. You prove it to me. My information is in the worship guide. You can email me today or this week and nothing would make me happier than the opportunity to meet with you personally or have a discussion over text message or or email and we can talk it out and I promise it would be non-judgmental, non-pressure kind of conversation. But I'm assuming that most of you are here this morning because you've long ago made the decision. You believe Christ is risen. You believe that Christ is Lord. What I want to say to you is Tim Keller's words are still true we still find the resurrection irritating. And you say, well, how can you say that? We just said Christ is risen indeed. And yes, people are saying that all across America in in pews, in churches all across this country. But I'm telling you, most of us believers in Jesus still live like he's still in the ground. We're thankful he lived the way he lived. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. We're grateful that he's forgiven our sins and that we get to go to heaven when we die. But we act like he's not alive, like he's not walking alongside of us, like we're not daily accountable to him. And this scripture we're going to look at is is example A of what I'm talking about. So in John chapter 12, verse 20, let's begin there in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The feast is talking about is the Passover. And if you're a first century Jew, the Passover is your Christmas, your Thanksgiving, your Easter, your Super Bowl Sunday, and your July 4th all wrapped into one. It is a day of, of civic and patriotic pride and also a day of devotion to God. It is a whole week of feasting and celebration followed by the most significant observance of their religious year. And so the city of Jerusalem, which usually had about 50,000 people in it, would have about 500,000. Those ancient walls just crammed with pilgrims because if you could get there, you went. And in the midst of this flood, here comes these Greek people. Now, they were what Jews of the time would have called God-fearers, meaning they, were not converged, they hadn't converted yet to Judaism. 
If you were a male, there was this whole circumcision thing that sort of got in the way. But they believed in the God of Israel. They believed and were seeking more knowledge of him. And it says they came to the feast, and it says in verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, John doesn't give us a lot of details. He doesn't tell us anything about these guys besides their ethnicity. He doesn't tell us even whether they got to talk to Jesus or what that interaction was like. But he does tell us that they approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida. Now, the interesting thing about that is Bethsaida is a town in Galilee in the first century where there was a higher proportion of Gentiles than in most Israelite cities. So I think what John is trying to imply to us is they approached Philip because he came from a town they were familiar with. In fact, they may have even known Philip. They may have been old friends. But if you're Philip, even if these were the guys you played baseball with when you were a kid, you're still thinking, yeah, but you're Gentile and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. His job is to come put you in your place, maybe even put you to death so we can rule. So is it even appropriate for me to bring you into his presence? So Philip doesn't know what to do, but he thinks to himself, well, now Andrew's been following Jesus longer than I have. He was the first of the 12 to start following Jesus. So I'll ask him what to do. So it says in in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels that when people come to Jesus with questions, he usually answers them in a way they're not expecting. In fact, he usually takes their question, which seems very simple, and he turns it into something completely different that they're like, okay, that's not really what I asked, but thank you. And that's what Jesus does here. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he's saying is, it's time for me to die. And he's been saying this to the disciples. He's been telling the 12 for weeks now, my time is coming. See, he uses the word hour here because in the gospel of John, that's a significant term. When Jesus is about to turn water into wine, he tells his mother, listen, my hour has not yet come. When a group of men seek to put him to death, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And he walks away. He does not allow himself to be killed. All through the gospel of John, there's that term, the hour, the hour. That refers to the hour of Jesus's atoning death for us. And now these Greeks show up and Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh, this is the sign I was looking for. My hour has come. Just a few days, he'll go to the cross. You can imagine, you're one of the disciples. You've been following this guy for three years. You left everything behind to follow him because you believe he's going to be the king of the world. How can he say, I'm about to die? And Jesus explains it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying is, if I die, then I fulfill my destiny. If I die, then I gain everything. If I hold on to what I have, then I'll lose everything. Think about the, the image he gives of a grain of wheat, just any kind of seed you want to imagine. If, if you plant that grain of wheat, it turns into something greater than itself. It fulfills its purpose. If a seed had a will of its own and you asked the seed, do you want to go into the ground? They'd say, no, no, I don't want to grow into the ground. I don't want to die. I don't want to lose what I have. And yet, if it, if it holds on to what it has, it loses everything. Jesus says, I could hold on to this life. Trust me, I don't want to die. I don't want to be physically tortured and mocked and spat upon. I don't want to go through that process. Moreover, I don't want to lose you guys. You guys, the life we have together is precious to me. But if I hold on to this, then I'll lose everything. 
But you see those Greeks? Those Greeks have come to me. That's the sign that my hour has come because God has told me that all the nations will come. If I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. In a few decades, John is going to write a book that we know as Revelation in which he's going to see a vision of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, people of every color and language standing before the throne of God in heaven, singing his praise. Jesus says, that's what I gain if I die. If I hold on to what I have, I lose all that. I know exactly what I have to do. And y'all, if you're a Christian like I am, you love that. Man, you can't get enough of that. That's what we sing songs about, that Jesus, he gave up his life for ours. He paid it all. What we don't like is what he's about to say next. Because here's what he goes on and says. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Jesus says, here's the challenge of the empty tomb. Jesus says, listen, you're going to face the same choice I'm facing right now. In fact, you're going to face this choice over and over again. The decision to lay down what you have for the sake of my call. And everything within you, all of your flesh, all of your earthly wisdom is going to say, no, 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 I need to hold on to what I have because what I have is precious to me. But everything you hold on to for yourself is going to go away. But whatever you give up will never, ever die. And we know what this looks like. We've seen and heard the stories of the thousands and thousands of martyrs down through the generations who have given their life for the cause of Christ. And I, I just want to tell you real quickly about three. You know these stories. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young Lutheran minister in Germany in the 1940s, 30s, and 40s. He was one of the few Christians who had the courage to stand up against Hitler and just publicly denounce him, preach the gospel, even though the German, the, the German regime wanted to turn the German church into something different. He preached the true gospel and he paid for it with his life. And after he died, his works became very famous and, and they've inspired many people. And one of the quotes he wrote down is what you see on the screen. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Because I know, I know you won't hear this when you listen to a televangelist and you probably won't hear this in most churches, but Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your couch cushion, your remote control, your smartphone? No, he said, take up your cross. The cross was an instrument of death. Jesus was saying, are you willing to leave your life? You're willing to lose your life for me? Then you can follow me. A decade after Bonhoeffer, there was Jim Elliott, just a, a college student at Wheaton College in Illinois, who managed just crazy enough to convince a half dozen of his friends, hey, let's go to Ecuador. I read about this tribe down there that has no contact with the Western world. They still live in Stone Age conditions. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Let's go. Let's learn their language. Let's teach them the truth. So these, the, this handful of college young men, young Christian men go down there and within weeks they end up speared to death by the men who they came to evangelize. Made national news, made worldwide news. And then what was even more crazy, Jim's wife, his widow Elizabeth, young woman with a very young child and, and the sister of one of his partners in ministry goes to Ecuador and picks up the work that their loved ones had left behind and ends up leading that whole tribe to salvation in Christ. And later, Elizabeth publishes Jim's works, his, his journal, 
which becomes a bestseller. And this sentence becomes just a, a, a priceless, timeless quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then in our own time, there's Kayla Muller. You may remember this story from a few years ago. Kayla was not a missionary. She was not a pastor, but she was just an ordinary Christian woman. Uh, Worked in a relief organization, happened to be stationed in Syria. This was uh, at the time when ISIS took over that country. She was captured along with many of her coworkers. Kayla Muller was, for some reason, they decided to just focus their their hatred on her. She was physically tortured in in horrible ways. At one point, she was given in marriage to the the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi himself, who who she became unwillingly his wife, and you can imagine what that entails. Um, Later, she was killed. And yet, when people who had been imprisoned with her uh, came home after they were released, they told stories about her. They said at one point that ISIS wanted Kayla Muller to make a propaganda video uh, in which she denounced her Christian faith publicly. They would have treated her much more uh, humanely if she'd done this, but she refused. At another point, there was a prisoner exchange. We were going to send some of our prisoners to them so we could get some of our captives back. And she had the opportunity to be part of that exchange, but there was a woman in captivity with her who was in worse health than she was, and she let that woman go home instead. But she handed uh, the the captives who were freed a letter uh, and said, give this to my family. And the letter, uh, among other things, said this following quote, I have decided to surrender completely to my creator because there is literally no one else. And we, we hear those stories and we think as Christians, wow, what courage, what, what amazing faith. I wish I could be that courageous. And yet think about what they did in light of the, of the resurrection of Christ. See, if Christ isn't risen, then they wasted their lives. These are three very young people who could have lived long, productive lives and done great things, and instead they threw it away. But if Christ is risen, then they're the smartest people of all. If this life is just a dress rehearsal for the next life, if, if the next life is what really counts, what really lasts, then their sacrifice was so smart, was so wise. Because like Jim Elliott said, you You're not a fool if you give up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. And you may be saying, okay, Jeff, that's very inspiring. Thank you, but I'm not a missionary. I'm not called to the mission field, although some of you in this room may feel that call. Most of us, that's not our call. I don't live under a tyrannical, dictatorial regime. Hallelujah, we live in a free nation. Most of us will never have to face the choice of renounce Christ or die. And that's a good thing. And yet, and yet, the words of Jesus still count for us because there's still stuff we're holding on to. And the challenge of the empty tomb is lay it aside. Lay it aside and gain the whole world. If if you're part of this church family and you've been to church at all this year, you know we're doing something we're calling the all-in challenge. We're challenging our members to do four things specifically because we just want to know God better. We want to serve Him more fully. Number one, we're challenging every member of our church to read the entire Bible. Yes, including Leviticus. We've already covered it. Uh, Secondly, uh, to to engage in mission work in a hands-on way, either here in our community or on a mission trip. We're taking several of those this year. Uh, Number three, every one of us has people in our circle of influence who don't know Christ, who don't have a relationship with God. We're committed to praying for those people by name every day to do inventory of all our relationships and pray for those people. And number four, to commit to greater generosity this year than ever before. 
And I don't know because I'm not you, but I'm just guessing that for at least nine out of 10 of you, that last one is the hardest one. Yeah, even harder than reading the Old Testament, which is tough. Because let's face it, the first word you learned as a child was, was no, right? And the second word you learned was mine. And you got really good at saying those words. And the way we've been taught as Americans is success is to accumulate a bunch of stuff. Success is to have a, a, a certain kind of lifestyle, and he who dies with the most toys wins. But Jesus said something different. Jesus said, you're a fool if you lay up treasures on earth because it's all going to go away anyway. Somebody's going to steal it, or it's all going to rust, or, or your idiot son's going to spend it all, right? But if you lay up treasure in heaven, it'll never go away. And there's that old joke, and it's really stupid, but I'm going to tell it anyway, about the woman who dies, and there's an angel who's guiding her through the streets of heaven, and she's looking around just dazzled by the beauty of this place. And then the angel stops and says, ma'am, here's your home. Here's where you're going to spend eternity. And she looks and she says, well, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound ungrateful because I'm, I'm so glad to be here, but this house is smaller than the one I had back on earth, and that's kind of disappointing. And the angel said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but the truth is this is the best we could do with the materials you sent up to us. And yeah, that's a joke, but this is a true story. Sometime years ago, I was, I was in the process of buying a car, which, you know, is like, having a root canal. But anyway, I was there um, talking to this salesman and he found out I was a preacher. And he said, now listen, I'm a Christian too, and no offense, but I just have to tell you about my son-in-law because he's a nut job. Maybe you can give me some advice on what I can say to him. I mean, he is, he is so crazy. He thinks, I mean, even though he's married to my daughter, even though he's got my grandchildren, he thinks it's smart to take 10% of everything he makes and donate it back to God. And I said, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's what the Bible says to do. And he kind of looked at me and I, and I said, but think about it. If Christ is risen and if the next life is where it really counts, isn't he the smart one? Aren't we the dumb ones for holding on to what we have? And, and for you, maybe it's not your physical resources that you're holding on to with a death grip. Maybe it's your pride. That's the truth with a lot of us. And I don't know any of you well enough to say this to your face. I'm just guessing that in a room this size, there are people in this room that have some conflicts in relationships right now. Can I safely say that? And maybe for some of you, you know deep down inside that if you said the simple words, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't said those things. I wish I hadn't done what I did. I'd love to make this up to you. It would go a, a long way toward bringing healing, but you won't because you're hanging on to your pride and you're saying, I'm not saying it. She's got to say it first. And then maybe, then maybe because she did me wronger than I did her. Or maybe you're the one that's been wounded and you know, you know that you need to offer forgiveness. But you know what? It feels so good to hang on to that hatred and that anger. It validates you. It's like a, it's like a nice little uh, uh, hot tub. You're just soaking in all that self-pity and anger. And I don't mean to minimize your pain because I know some of you have suffered in ways I can't even comprehend, but I also know this, that if you're holding on to your hatred because you don't like that person and you want to pay them back, just understand, you're trying to kill your enemy by drinking cyanide and it doesn't work. You're destroying yourself. Or, or maybe it's a relationship that you're involved in that's just not working out and you know, you know that person has legitimate grievances against you. You know you could make some changes in the way you act around them, but 
but there's a pride inside of you that says, yeah, well, but this is who I was when she married me. She knew what she was signing up for. Or, hey, we've been friends a long time. You know how I am. This is who I am. Just put up with it. And I'm telling you, folks, if you hold on to your pride, you're going to lose everything. And you will regret that deeply. And there's so many other examples I can give. I know, I know there's bound to be people in this room that are struggling with addictions, with bad habits, with pet sins, and you think you've got it hidden from the people who love you the most, but it's bringing you down. And you need to let go of that and just let go of the pride and say, I need help with this. And I know there are people in this room, there are bound to be people in this room who have important conversations they still need to have. Somebody needs to be confronted in your life that's headed in the wrong direction, or somebody needs to hear a a word about your faith. Somebody needs to hear some word from you, and you know what it is, but you're holding on to that that security of knowing right now our relationship isn't awkward, and if I bring this up, it's going to get awkward. Yeah, yeah, but you're going to lose everything if you hold on to that. And there's probably people in this room that are called to to be involved in a certain ministry. God has gifted you. He's given you a passion for it. Maybe he's opened a door where someone has said, hey, would you come help us with this? And you're holding on to this idea that, yeah, but right now my schedule's my own. And if I surrender to that ministry, if I volunteer for that opportunity, that's going to be a big commitment. You're giving up an opportunity to change eternity because there's a show you haven't binged on Netflix yet, really. And now I'm really going to get in trouble, but I'm going there anyway because it's Easter and I don't think you'll stone me to death on Easter, but here we go. There's some of you in this room, I'm sure, and I don't know who you are, but there's some of you here in this room that if you were honest, you'd say, yeah, the truth is, I know I need to be part of the body of Christ. I I say I go to this this church and and that means I show up here every once in a while, but I'm not invested here. I don't make any kind of commitment here. I'm just, I go here the way I I ever once in a while go to McDonald's when I want food that's not real. I, 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 I go here the way I go to a gym when I decide I want to work out. It's just something every once in a while. And guys, listen, I understand. Believe me, I do. I understand how busy life is today. And especially if you have kids and you work hard all week and then Saturday you're chasing uh, somebody down to a softball tournament or a baseball tournament or a dance recital. Um, And I know that Sunday morning is the only time you have to just be human. But I also know this, if you have kids, you're sending those kids a signal that says, hey, son, daughter, God is optional. He's, He's fine in a crisis. Make sure you got him on speed dial, but you know, just when you need him. And they're digesting that message. And they will live it out. I'm sure you're doing a great job of parenting. Keep it up. But if you're not showing them what matters most, you'll regret it. And even if you don't have kids, guys, get this. You were created to be part of something bigger than yourself. And where God does his work of changing the world is through the local church. Not just First Baptist Conroe, by the way. You might, be, you might be yoked to some other congregation, and if so, if they preach the gospel, then be loyal to them. But understand, your destiny is fulfilled when you serve as part of the body of Christ, and we are not complete as long as you're not fulfilling your purpose. So John Ortberg tells this story. He had this great aunt, his, his dad's aunt named Fran, who lived in Rockford, Illinois back in the 1930s. She lived right next door to a Swedish guy named Ivar. 
Ivar was a tinkerer, an inventor, and one day he came to her and he said, now listen, Fran, I have finally finished this project I've been working on for years. It's a kitchen appliance. It's going to change the world. Every housewife in America is going to want one. You're my friend. I'm telling you this. If you've got a little money, invest it all in this product. You'll be glad you did. Now, Fran knew Ivar. She knew he was a hard worker and, and she trusted him. So she went to the bank where she had in savings $10,000, which was a heck of a lot of money in the 1930s. And she went to the bank to withdraw the money, but this was the 30s. Now, ladies, this story is going to make you mad. So the people at the bank, the men at the bank came to her and they said, Francis, you realize that there's a depression going on, right? There are men out there who owned businesses, who were millionaires, who now are standing in bread lines. We're not going to let you withdraw this money. I mean, this would be the stupidest thing you ever did. Why would you take the money you've saved all your life and give it to some immigrant who has an idea? Now, Fran was, was a, an intelligent woman. She knew that legally speaking, they couldn't stop her from withdrawing the money. It was hers. At the same time, she thought to herself, they know more about finances than I do. So she held on to what she had. The product that Ivar was, was inventing was called, he called it the Mixmaster. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, it became part of a company he founded called Sunbeam. And if she would have invested $10,000 with Ivar in the 30s, it would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars today. And as John Ortberg says, she had no kids. My dad was her favorite nephew, and I'm his oldest son. And if not for those stupid, stupid men at the bank... Now think about that. That regret is microscopic compared to the eternal regret that you and I will feel. Us and succeeding generations if we hold on to things that we know God wants us to lay down. If there is something God is calling you to do, some step of obedience you haven't yet taken, don't delay Hand it over to him. See, that's the challenge of the empty tomb. If Christ is risen, then everything changes. If Christ is risen, everything we give, we never lose. But everything we hold on to is gone forever. Are you going to gain the world and lose your soul? That's the challenge of the empty tomb. What will you do with it today?